Welcome to Translating COVID-19. This is a series of uh, uh, Skype-recorded video conversations which explore forms, metaphors, and practices of translation in the context of the current global health crisis. My name is Marta Arnaldi, and I am a LAMI Research Fellow at the Queen's College, University of Oxford. If you wonder what the beautiful image in the background is, that is the Queen's College or Library. And I thank Claire Hooper for providing this picture. Today, I have the privilege and indeed the pleasure to join in conversation Nicola Gardini, Professor of Italian and Comparative Literature at the University of Oxford, an exquisite painter and the author of award-winning novels, essays, literary monographs, memoirs, poetry collections and translations. In this video, Nicola and I will reflect on the role of translation in the midst of the pandemic. But before starting, please let me thank first of all Nicola, without whom this conversation would not be possible, all the speakers, colleagues and participants who in various ways have contributed to Translating Illness, which is a broader project to which Translating COVID-19 belongs. And last but not least, I would like to thank the funders of this project, the Queen's College, Welcome Institutional Strategic Support Fund, and John Fell Fund at this university. Nicola, I would like to break the ice with a question that is as obvious as is challenging. Since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, I have been approached with mixed words of encouragement and provocation. So on the one hand, given the transnational dimension of this crisis, People have thought that there could not have been a better time to bring together the two seemingly unrelated words of translation and disease. On the other hand, however, others have been more skeptical or rightly cautious by pointing out that many people died and therefore that the imperative of research right now is very clearly to save lives. Translation, these people fear, is not going to serve this purpose. So how exactly, if at all, do you think that translation can help us be alive or keep alive in the current circumstances? And does translation actually play a role in fighting illness and death? Or is it just a therapeutic form of entertainment in the face of absurdity? Yes. Uh, very good. Thank you very much, Marta, for this invitation. Uh, you, you know how interested I am in, in the language of illness. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm a translator too. And, uh, and uh, thanks, to, th thanks to you, uh, these two terms, illness and translation, are receiving uh, uh, one attention, one unifying uh, focus. Um, and uh, I feel very, very... Um, very proud to be here because uh, illness is a mysterious text. Illness uh, asks us to translate this extreme experience, which most of the time we do not understand, into something comprehensible, something shareable. Um, that's an act of translation indeed. Uh, why do we need translation? What do we need it for? Well, to make, to make uh, sense uh, shareable. Um, now there is a language for for this kind of disease, COVID nineteen, and it's the science of uh, sorry, it's the the language of science. It's the language of of politicians. It's uh, it's the language of statistics. 
But is it really a language that is, isn't it just, just maybe a lingo or a, you know, a dialect more than a, a language we can all share and, and participate in? I do think that translating illness, translating COVID is not just entertainment. It's indeed a primary um, activity we all should take part in um, by fun, through finding words to make sense of what's going on. Of course, it also, as you said, it's a, it looks absurd. Uh, we're facing absurdity. We're facing something we never even considered possible. Uh, uh, I mean, till October or November, who could have thought that in a matter of weeks, the world would fall into this major worry? Uh, and, and massive death. Who could, could have predicted this? Nobody. Now, we need to make sense of that. Why did we not in the first place? We, why didn't we understand? Why didn't we understand the signs of what was going to happen? Mm -hmm. um, we are really facing a, a linguistic problem here. Um, not just, you know, in a technical sense, we are not probably translating literature into other languages, but we are translating experience, uh, dark experience, obscure experience, complicated experience, controversial experience, unexpected experience into a new language, into a new, a new medium. Now, the very act of translation, what we literary people can, you know, consider <laughs> translation in, in a literal meaning uh, is still part of it. Uh, I mean, um, I, do, I, don't, I don't think translation as a, as a purely linguistic, linguistic act is out of, the, of, out of the picture because we are all now, right now, translating our languages into... Uh, into other languages. We are trying to communicate globally. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing here is indeed creating one common language for everybody to speak the same things. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the aspiration of, of translation. Uh, all translations uh, in the history of, of human communication have had that ambition to make sense final ava finally available for the whole community. Now, the community is global. So we are indeed, when we speak of COVID, we are really trying hard, uh, probably still quite helplessly, but nonetheless, we feel we should try hard to speak the same language. Uh, that is, we all agree on some things. And creating, we need to create a new code. Mm -hmm. COVID should really come with a new code to speak about it. Now, creating a new code into which accommodate the discoveries of experience is translation. So I don't see the two, illness and translation, as inimical. Yeah. They, all major experiences of the, of the human being are linguistic experiences because they do not just happen. They need to be told. Yes. They, they need to be analyzed, they need to be understood, and we understand linguistically, of course. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Nicola. Now that you're talking about it, I'm thinking that um, 
humankind throughout history has tried to make sense, to give name uh, and uh, to uh, make it exist linguistically, to make a linguistic sense of absurdity and illness. So in this respect, during the coronavirus lockdown, there has been a renewed interest in pestilence fiction. On the 28th of March, The Guardian reported that Penguin Classics, which is the British publisher of The Plague by Albert Camus, uh, was shipping thousands of copies of the book every month, thus struggling to keep up with orders. Can you help understand how pandemics have been translated across space and time, and what can we learn from these acts of translation? Yes, well, pandemi pandemics are political problems. Uh, pandemics, uh, of course, concern doctors uh, and and uh, and whoever is in, in, involved in in coming up with the remedies. But uh, when we look back to to you know the great narratives of uh, of pandemics, epidemics um, in in the history of world literature, we will always see this bond between disease, illness, and and politics. Um, I mean to. Camus is a very good example. It's a, it's quite a recent one. Uh, his his plague, um, la peste, is indeed a, a major metaphor for for colonialism in in, in northern Africa. Um, but just let's go back to the very beginning. I mean, to to Thucydides' uh, account of the plague in Athens. Interestingly enough, that that plague happens at the very beginning of of the Peloponnesian War, and it it. Uh, well, it seems to, to come from uh, some external uh, um, source. Uh, Thucydides to, to, to debates whether it's the Spartans who disseminated the, the disease <laughs> or, or the Easterners, um, uh, that is, the Persians or whoever came to, to, to the port of Athens. Uh, but he leaves it open. He says, well, you know, we, we can't in the end really establish who, who, who started this. Nonetheless, it's interesting that his own account of, of the war is opened by the account of the plague, as if the plague were there to signify a, 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 a big a bigger picture, a greater scheme than the actual, you know, military events or the political crisis which which brought about the conflict between uh, Sparta and and Athens. Um, the same is true of other uh, uh, plagues. Um, um, there's one which uh, is less known and uh, I'm quite familiar with: the epidemic of syphilis in the mm -hmm. early 16th century. I work on the Renaissance, and syphilis was indeed uh, diagnosed, or indeed even discovered, by one uh, Girolamo Fracastoro, uh, a famous uh, Italian doctor um, in 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 uh, in the history of of, of, epi of epidemiology. Um, uh, Fracastoro is a big guy, is a big name, a big shot. Now, I mean, probably scholars know him because he was also a Latin poet, a neo-Latin poet. Anyway, he wrote not only a treatise on contagions, but also a poem in three books, very Virgilian in language, nonetheless very scientific in, in, in its approach, um, on syphilis. And Girolamo Fracastoro is very clear on the connection between the, mil the military crisis of Italy and mm -hmm. 
the emergence of the disease. So the disease is both an allegory, a metaphor for a lack of equilibrium, for the loss of balance in the political stability of, of, a, of a given country. And it is also the outcome of that, of that lack of ba balance, of that lost balance. Um, so all contagions are to be understood within a, 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 a bigger framework it, because they do not just happen for, for no apparent reason. They are the result of a long chain of errors. Um, mm -hmm. And some of these errors are, are of, of a political nature. Yeah. Thank you very much for this, Nicola. It makes me think, though, um, as we discussed uh, in the past uh, months together, is it that although the language of war sufficient, a sufficient lexicon to express the experience of COVID-19? Right. Yes. You, you, I mean, you refer, this is a good question, Marta. You are referring, of course, to a, a prevalent metaphor or metaphorology, uh, um, which is current and very and very common to hear uh, COVID as an enemy um, and uh, as uh, as somebody or something we need to wage war on. Um, now, Susan Sontag wrote what remains to me a definitive uh, interpretation of, of military um, metaphors of, of figurative, um, you know, military figure, figurative speech uh, in relation to illness. And she was right in rejecting that mm -hmm. language. She was speaking of AIDS, which is another great pandemic. Um, interestingly, it's very hard to see the connection between COVID-19 and, and, and AIDS. Um, today, uh, but uh, let's not forget that another big pandemic was just, you know, uh, this one, the AIDS, not too long ago, and uh, HIV stood around. <laughs> yeah, and so a lot of what AIDS taught us through literature, um, we seem to have forgotten, actually, and we're still struggling to devise um, a new code to speak about what's going on. Um, uh, no, it's not enough to, to, treat, to treat COVID as an enemy, and I don't think it's correct. COVID mm. is, um, is just a natural phenomenon. It's something that nature does. Viruses exist. Um, they are neighbors. Uh, they are uh, lives that are around us. It's life. Uh, it's one of the many forms that life takes on to... To, 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 to stay in the world. We need to, to learn how to live with viruses, with bacteria, uh, with people we don't like, and, 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 and a lot more. So um, I'm, I'm completely against wars. I wouldn't think of myself as a, as a person uh, who would defend war ever in, in life or anywhere in the world. Uh, I do think that we humans have got language to communicate, even when language is extremely difficult to use, even when cultural translation seems the hardest. Um, but nonetheless, it's really what we need to always resort to. 
So I would go for other metaphors. Uh, of course, it's hard to, uh, it's easier to agree on such uh, a, a blatantly dramatic, overdramatic metaphor. No, we feel under attack. We no. are not under attack. We are just uh, coping with a very difficult disease, but um, we should also come to terms with our responsibilities. Yes. Uh, I, I like it, what are you saying very much, Nicola. Sorry if I interrupt you, but I was just thinking. Um, of of course, we are not here defending illness or defending death. But what you're talking about is a very uh, thought-provoking indeed. Is the fact that the the translation provides a language of tolerance. Um, a code that allows us to see things from a different perspective, perhaps the perspective that we naturally would reject, and to see things within a broader picture, in this case, the ecosystem of the Earth. Indeed. Thank you, Marta, for, for completing what, what I left um, uh, implicit in what I was saying. Yeah, first of all, let's learn what a virus is. I mean, we people speak speak of enemies when they don't know what they're talking about. Um, once we, we know things and people better, uh, there's there's less room left for for making up an enemy. Now, mm -hmm. uh, viruses need us because they don't have a strong identity and uh, they they need another body, another uh, another set of cells to feed on. Uh, this is what happens with HIV. So the Actually, if we knew more about viruses, we would know that identity in nature is, is something um, fluid, something uncertain. Of course, we're very jealous of our own identities as humans. I mean, the, the whole immunosystem was, was is a biological creation, a wonderful biological creation, which determine, determines what is the self and what is not the self. Uh, and we, we managed to uh, evolve uh, as, a, as a species because we did create a, a, a self, a biological self. But this biological self is not definitive and, and it's definitely not um, uh, safe uh, mm -hmm. all the time. Um, we, when, when these viruses attack us, uh, to just repeat what uh, the, the, the supporters of the military metaphors would say, would claim when these uh, viruses enter the system, um, they show us that we are permeable uh, systems, we are permeable entities, we are not one as we think we, we are. And this is true also in, in human interaction. Um, so viruses teach us that uh, we, we mix with one another, that we, we uh, penetrate one another um, by all kinds of, of interactions and exchanges. There are some exchanges that are possibly deadly, you know, like le letting a virus do what it wants with our body. But, there are, but, but this is the rule of nature. We are constantly entering other realms and we are constantly entered by other kinds of life. I tried to, to, to speculate about this and, uh, and in, in a novel of mine, um, that's why I, I have some ideas about this. Um, HIV is indeed, and uh, the virus of HIV, which is a very mutant virus, mo definitely more mutant than, than COVID, 
is a very good example of, of what uh, of what I've, I've just said. Um, so yes, we need other metaphors, and as you said, we need peace. Uh, only through peace will we be able to look at the other, to look at our neighbor in whatever form it comes. Yes, and, thank you, Nicola. Yeah. So the, the novel that you just mentioned is La Vita Non Vissuta, The Unlived Life, published by Feltrinelli in 2015. And I have actually some quotations from it. If you don't mind, I might read them, although oh. the translation is mine, so it's really bad. So please forgive it. Um, but I think that these two quotations ties in very well with what you're saying. In the attempt to describe illness, we never consider the primarily linguistic nature of suffering the clash with the unspeakable and the inexpressible, the failure of semantics, the imprecision of conclusions. Illness makes us live in a foreign land where all languages we know are put to test and none of them prove to be useful, not even silence. And then Nicola adds that, however, in the very moment when words leave us, and I quote, language springs out of cells, its birth it's a process of autonomy. This is what we call health. So I think it's very beautiful lines uh, that yeah. I wanted to, to read. So now that we're talking about uh, uh, the, um, um, the special perspective that translation provides us with, which is the perspective of tolerance, of understanding, of allowing the other to interact with us, and yet uh, in a way that uh, uh, allows us to preserve our own identity. I would like to move on to another question which is related to this uh, idea. So in one of uh, our last phone conversations, you told me in Italian, uh, that nessun fenomeno assolutizzato può essere compreso. That is, we cannot understand the phenomenon that has been turned into an absolute. So would you like to comment a bit more on this sentence and perhaps explain to us what is the uh, link with translation in this case? Yeah, yes. Uh, well, nothing uh, taken uh, as an absolute can uh, really... Um, help us understand how things work. So we need to always see, see things in, in their connections with what is probably not there to be seen immediately, but must be inferred as being present. Um, uh, and therefore, COVID must be understood within the broader framework of our political choices, of economic crisis, of international relationships, relations uh, of, of oh, we, we need to see it as a cultural phenomenon also, not just as an emergency. Um, and, uh, and that's why, uh, again, uh, translation uh, com comes in and, and comes back in, in the, into the, 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 the picture, uh, because it's again a question of relating what phenomena that might look discrete, separated, independent from one another, and the bonds, the links, all the connections we may come uh, up with uh, will be that act of translation. Of course, um, if we take translation as this cultural, uh, say, strategy, um, we would probably not come up, we won't come up with, uh, with a text, with a definitive text, a translation is not a result, it's, it's a process. Uh, 
and, mm -hmm. and that it's that kind of process we need we need to cultivate so and this probably also answers your very first question concerning the entertaining nature of translation well if we think that translation is just something we want to read and take pleasure from and get pleasure out of well probably yes that we don't need translation in this case but we need another kind of translation the process the effort mm -hmm to reach out for something that we still haven't been able to define. And it's the constant quest for definition that to me is a very nature, the core of the translation we need here. Thank you so much, Nicola, for showing us uh, so many different facets of this process. And there is one final point I would like to discuss with you. Uh, and this pertains specifically uh, to your artistic life, uh, because Nicola, as well as uh, an academic, is also a writer, as I mentioned before. So as a novelist or as a poet, what does contagion mean to you? Why should a writer cross the boundaries of literature, which in a sense uh, are uh, their homeland, to transpass into the foreign territory of medicine? In other words, wouldn't it be better or more efficient if everyone stuck to their role? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh yeah, I mean, it took me some years uh, to approach medicine. Um, uh, of course, there were some autobiographical uh, motivations. Uh, I think it all started when my father got Alzheimer's. And, and I observed him very closely and I became very acquainted with his linguistic impairments. As a linguist, myself, as a literary student, a scholar, um, I managed, even though I was his son, I managed to observe him from, uh, uh, you know, from a critical point of view, almost as if I were doing some, some close reading. Uh, and that prompted me to start reading quite a lot of literature on the mind, uh, you know, neuroscientific literature. Uh, some of it, of course, was quite hard for me, but I, you know, I started speaking with neuroscientists and I really tried hard to translate what I, as a man of letters, said or could say into what a neuroscientist had to say or could say. It was hard. It was hard because neuroscientists, at least those I, I, I spoke with and I even you know, worked with uh, at some point in New York, um, were quite reluctant to my metaphors. Um, the language of they don't know. I mean, most doctors don't know They they too use metaphors all the time, even though they think they're using a perfectly shaped and crystallized terminology. But their terminology is full of metaphors. And the, um, but they, of course, wouldn't tell you that it, this is the case because they're looking for, you know, clear and transparent sense. They want meaning to be graspable for everybody um, in the same manner. Uh, they don't want ambiguities. Uh, mm -hmm. On the contrary, we men, people of letters, men, women of letters, uh, even young students, we cultivate ambiguity. We, 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 we try to look into it. Um, now, it all started like that. And then I, bec I became all the more uh, uh, interested in, in medicine. Oh, oh, every time I had to see a doctor and every time I realized the doctor had very poor linguistic tools to talk to me or to talk to my 
my uh, loved ones. Um, so I, I, um, I became, you know, ever more aware that medicine today would greatly benefit benefit from literature. I spoke with even, you know, university faculties in Italy. Some people, uh, some some professors became interested in my work. Um, I was invited to conferences. Um, I opened the, 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 the World Conference on AIDS two years ago because of my novel. Um, and they even were even tempted to ask me to teach courses in literature for, for doctors. Uh, of course, it was flattering. I didn't do it. But I think it's about the time we uh, re reconnected medicine and literature, which is something that was at the very beginning of, 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 of medicine. Um, uh, I, I mean, the bond between medicine and poetry has always been there. We we forgot it, but let's go back to our Fracastoro, the guy I mentioned, the guy who, meant, who, who named syphilis. He was an amazing poet and a very, very, very good scientist and medical doctor. Um, medicine is a language. It's a, it's hard to call it a science. It rests on many sciences but it's still a very humanistic uh, world uh, of, of interests. We need to rekindle the linguistic awareness of medicine. Thank you, Nicola. And this is absolutely true, and uh, I share this view completely. And I would also, of course, add to this uh, one sphere uh, of, uh, uh, of the talk that in the same manner, also, literature is a very bodily experience, that there is no literary text without a beating heart or a thinking mind or moving yeah. body. Uh, Marta, let me say this. I don't know if you, if you, if you like me to say this, but we don't, we, I shouldn't silence the fact that you were a medical student yourself <laughs> at some point. <laughs> and, yeah. then, and, then, and then you convert. To, to literature. I mean, I think you started as a literature student, then moved to medicine. Yeah. And after some years in medicine, you moved that back to, to literature. Yeah. So there yeah. couldn't be a more qualified, I believe, a scholar than you to make the, to, to, to conclude in these terms. Thank oh, you very thank much. Thank you much, Nicola. This is very kind of you. And I thank you immensely for this wonderful talk. Uh, I could not have hoped for a better and uh, fascinating beginning. And uh, thank you to each one of you for watching this video. We hope that these reflections will help us find new ways to translate illness. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marta, and good luck.